The New Testament reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those, were, those who do not, sorry, when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is a word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some change to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. This is the gospel of the Lord. Grace to you, O Christ. So it's really good to be back. And one of the fun things about a wedding is it draws a lot of people back. And so I just want to also mention Drew and Susie Motter are here. And uh, Drew was one of the early pastors of City Church, and Susie was children's director. So, yeah. So all that stuff got started in those first five years of the church. And it's so exciting to see so many friends and so many familiar faces as, as we're back. And it is Stacy's birthday, and just in case you're wondering, she's getting chickens for birthday. They will run around our backyard. You can tell we have left the city. All right, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, um, help us as we hear these words of Scripture and these familiar words of the gospel story itself, and would you help us to be those who are there in the crowd with Jesus, hearing him say his, neither do I, go and sin no more. Meet us in just the place that we need to be met this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So you are, um, 
so you're in a summer series uh, listening tour, right, through the big stories of the Bible. Uh, I think Chris described to me as a summer mixtape. Now, some of you are, are really too young to know what a mixtape is, probably, but it's a throwback. It, took, it takes a little bit more effort than a playlist on Spotify to put together and compile, right? But you know, you've been looking at these amazing stories from the Bible, right? Um, Noah and the flood, the story of Ruth, David and Goliath, Jonah and the big fish, I think last week was Daniel, and the lion's den. And each week as you've gone through this, right, Cindy has helped you understand some of the beauty of the standalone qualities of each of those stories, right? Because they're things that happen that we're reading about and accessing in some sense. And we want to understand as much of the back then as we can. And yet we also really want to understand how does God's story of mercy keep going? How does it move into a next generation? How does it move toward the life of Jesus? And even in some sense to the life of the church, to us, to people like us. So this week we're jumping into the gospel itself and we're looking at a pretty famous story of Jesus, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And and the unique thing about the gospel stories of Jesus is that here's a moment where God is in person in our world. And you just can't like, like, like just pause and acknowledge the remarkable quality of that reality, that, that God is in person in our world. And so he's a human actor on the stage of human history. It's just a beautiful mystery. It's absolutely remarkable. As John puts it at the beginning of his gospel, he is the word made flesh. God enfleshed in our world. Rowan Williams, yes, I had to mention his name. So those of you that have been around the church for a while, when I was around, you probably heard way too many quotes from Rowan Williams. So here's another one, just in case you've forgotten what he has to say. He writes this of these stories from the gospel. He says that the actions of Jesus are themselves words. The actions of Jesus are themselves words because Jesus is the word in flesh. So what Jesus does, as much as what he says, is what God has to say to us. And so these acts of Jesus' early life, he says, remain contemporary, which is another little twist, right? That they're not just locked in the past. They're not just, you know, things that we rehearse and remember, but there's a sense in which those things that Jesus did are present with us today. And part of that, right, if you think about this particular story of the woman caught in adultery, some act of sexual sin, it isn't really hard to think about how that might become a contemporary issue. But that's not what Rowan Williams is talking about, per se. Yes, the church is obsessed and worried about sexual ethics quite a bit, but he's actually more interested not so much in the, the issues or the themes that we still rehearse and think about, but the very fact that when we gather for worship, and we sing songs, and we pray prayers, and we read the Scripture, and we gather to the Lord's table, that the Holy Spirit is with us, among us, in our midst. So he's using these actions of Jesus, these words of Jesus, to once again woo us so that we become individuals and we become a church community that goes a little bit further with Jesus this time. So that when we go into our ordinary weeks and we're facing 
all the bits and pieces that life throws at us in any given week, we're remembering and rehearsing God with us. Or as May said earlier, we see God seeing us. It's a beautiful idea, particularly in this particular story, as we think about Jesus and his interactions with this particular woman and with those Pharisees. So I just invite you, as we think about this, to consider, as we've said multiple times in our service already, what is your story? What are the bits and parts of life that you've brought into the room with you today? Or what are the bits and the parts that maybe you think you should sort of tuck away and hide, but they really need to be in the room with you today? Because God sees all of you, every bit of you. And it's a beautiful and life-giving thing. So this particular story, it's a love story and it's a doubted story. Now, what do I mean by that? It's love. It's love because it's a remarkable story of grace. I mean, you read this interaction between Jesus and you're like, it's gotta be true. It must be true. I need it to be true. Or you read it and you sort of have doubts about the story. And maybe it's because you actually read it in your Bible and you noted that there was a footnote there that said a lot of the early manuscripts don't actually include this story. And sometimes when it shows up, it doesn't even show up in John, it shows up in Luke. And that's really weird. We don't know what to do with that. So do I read it as authentic or not? And so there's a doubt that sort of emerges. Maybe you read this story and you're a church leader, right? And you want to doubt it because there's something dangerous about this story, right? What will people do with their sin if this story is true? That's something that St. Augustine seemed to think about why this actually might have a a rough textual history. It's not, now, it's all speculative, of course, for him, but he's thinking, I've been around the church, I've worked in the church, I know the church, I know that community fairly well. And St. Augustine basically says, it doesn't surprise me that some people might think this is a dangerous story. And if we include it, people just won't take sin very seriously. Maybe you doubt it because you desperately want it to be true, but it just feels like fantasy. Does Jesus really say, neither do I? So three things I'd love to chat about this morning. Questions, dirt, and deliverance. Questions, dirt, and deliverance. All right, questions. So you read the story, you heard heard it being read, right? And you think, this is a messed up situation. Right? Did y'all think that? I thought that. You just hear it, and in a modern hearing of the story itself, there's something about it that just feels really wrong on so many levels, right? Um, questions just immediately begin to pile up in our minds because this occasion of the woman's caught situation, right? Caught in the act of adultery. But it's really more honestly, not a question about adultery per se, and not really even about the woman at all, because she's not very important to the Pharisees, it doesn't seem. Their question is really about Jesus. He's a great teacher in Israel. So will he agree with something that's so obvious, the law of Moses? Will he side with us? Will he engage this very clear act of violation in some way, right? That's the scene that we're led into here. 
And the, you know, it's really, where, do you, where Jesus do you stand to the law? And this woman is just the occasion for trying Jesus, for asking him that question. And then it likely, for as I've alluded to, prompts questions in our own mind, like one of the obvious ones is, well, where's the man? Because last I understood, it usually takes more than one person to commit adultery. So where's the man? Like, did he know somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody? Or is this just more of patriarchy sort of doing what patriarchy does? And this woman is just taking the brunt of it, right, in some sense, and really being used in a most egregious way. And so the moment you begin to think about that, the questions that come to our mind are things like, Jesus, this is unjust and unfair. Can you please comment on the injustice, right? The injustice of this situation, the unfairness of this trial, and maybe you should just declare a mistrial of this particular situation, right? Is justice even possible in this situation? The religious leaders, as we've said, aren't really concerned about the woman at all. They just keep questioning Jesus. And here's the thing about the questions that we bring to the text or that the text even raises for us inside of it, and that is that Jesus doesn't really answer any of them. They're just there. They're lingering in our minds in this very strange situation. So second thing, dirt. All right, and this is where the story gets weird, right? Because Jesus stoops down and he begins to very silently doodle in the dirt, right? He's drawing in the dirt. And everybody's trying to figure out, well, what was he drawing in the dirt? Like, did he write something? Did he, you know, just all the kinds of, you can just imagine yourself there. And you're, maybe you're among the disciples, maybe you're among the Pharisees because you've got the moral thing going on and you really are policing some things, right? Or maybe, maybe you're more like this woman. You're thinking, oh no, she's been caught. What if, what if they knew my story? And Jesus begins to doodle in the dirt in this silent pause. What's running through your head? The Pharisees are irritated actually with Jesus. And so they just keep pounding him with questions. That's what they do. One of the connections that I'm curious about with the word dirt is that Jesus's hands and fingers are in the dirt And at least within John's gospel story of Jesus' life, he has chosen to frame his telling of Jesus' story using the very early pages of Scripture itself, the creation account. And there it's, you know, we read, well, in in the gospel of John, it's in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? So we're meant to just immediately hear those echoes of creation. So there's something about the life of Jesus that is creation that is recreation. And John wants us to understand that. And when you look back into Genesis, we understand God to be what? A a gardener, right? He's he's a God, a a divine gardener who's creating and fashioning human beings out of the dust of the earth, dirt. Male and female, he created them. And here this woman caught oddly alone in adultery, a violation of the marriage covenant gestures towards in the same texts of Genesis, which speak of fidelity and married love and the covenant between a man and a woman. So we have these sort of echoes that sort of surface in a text like this. 
And so there you are watching Jesus doodle in the dirt. Then there's maybe a connection with Moses' story, not the one that you read a few weeks ago, but on the mountain where the finger of God carves the great 10 commandments in the stone tablets. A form of dirt, sort of, you know, but the finger of God is there, right, in some sense. Maybe you think back to the earlier parts of Genesis as well, just after human beings forsake their life with God. And God says, you're from the dust and to dust you will return. All of these things begin to surface in our minds as we sort of think about this. Or maybe you're aware of Psalm 103 where we're reminded that God is aware that we are like dust. In other words, there's a vulnerability in humanity that God is very much acquainted with. He sees your vulnerability. He sees the fragile nature of your life. Jesus breaks the silence and he says, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Wow, that's where you went. The law required that accusers would be the first to cast stones, but Jesus reframes their practice by inviting even the accusers to begin not with the woman, but with themselves, their stories, their life with God, their life with neighbor. Before you ever seek to untangle the violation or the failure of another, start with your own self so that you begin to recognize that like the person you're accusing, you need desperately the mercy of God. You need a God who looks on your dustness and who says to you, neither do I, go and sin no more. You need to have an experience of mercy. St. Augustine said that one of the best and most important ways to stand beside someone in Christian community is that you stand beside them as a fellow sinner. And it's not that we're meant to sort of, sort of wallow or be despairing or hopeless or just dark but that we're actually meant to recognize that we are recipients of God's grace and his mercy. So that when I'm with my neighbor, I'm always aware that there's a sameness about us. And the sameness is that we're sinners, but we're redeemed sinners. We're people whom God has looked upon with favor and loved and lifted us out of the, the, the dust again in the person of Jesus. So questions, dirt, now deliverance. So Jesus very famously, right, in this text asks, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Go your way and from now on, do not sin again. I just wanna propose that this is a better verdict than a mistrial. This is a better verdict than just clarifying what the law actually teaches around questions of sexual ethics. Go and sin no more, neither do I condemn you. Jesus has brought this woman into a place of absolute and beautiful deliverance. This is the grace to the woman, obviously, because she has certainly been unfairly accused in some ways. But it's also a grace I wanna to suggest to the Pharisees. 
And it's a grace to them because what they needed to understand and grasp is that the faithfulness that God invites his community into is not a faithfulness that can be achieved because you've better understood the moral rules. God invites us into a space of faithfulness in which grace abounds so that you and I can with confidence say to God, I really want to know how you see me. I really want to see your eyes seeing me because when I see myself, when I'm honest about my story, all those bits and parts, the hard things, I do feel despair. I do want to run and hide. I do want to sort of slink away, or I do want to sort of lift up the happy parts so that everybody sees those. But God sees all of us, and he does so in this context in which grace abounds so that we stop running from God and we invite his gazing look upon us. And we stop running from our neighbor and we even invite our neighbor to see us and to see who we are so that confession happens sometimes very privately and sometimes it happens somewhat publicly because we actually pull a friend into that space and I say, let me tell you what I did. Let me tell you what struggle looks like in my life. You see, Jesus does us a great service in this story He doesn't treat sin as we're so often inclined to treat sin in our culture, right? I mean, just let's have an honest conversation about that. When we look at the church, we live in this profoundly polarized moment of the church's life on the right and on the left. And I just want to suggest that on the right and the left, everyone is forgetting Jesus. And it's tragic. You look into our society and we very often get frustrated because it feels like we can't even talk about the word sin as if it's a real thing. You ever feel that way? Lots of times the church on the right looks out at that reality and despairs or it's angry or it just thinks the answer is just to police it a little bit harder or to get better legislation passed. That's not what Jesus does here. Jesus talks about sin, and we see that in the second phrase, right? Go and sin no more. There's something that Jesus has liberated this woman from, a way of being human, a way of expressing her humanity, or maybe it's even a way of being abused in her humanity, that Jesus calls her to a better place, that she might actually live with the grain of God's world differently than she was before. We know very little about the particulars of her story. But we do know that Jesus says, go and sin no more. And that's such a profoundly important thing. But neither does Jesus follow the path that's characteristic of the religious right. He does not double down on the law. He does not double down and make sure everybody understands the rules perfectly. But he begins to forge a kind of faithfulness that allows us to move into a better space with God, a better space even with ourselves, in a better space with our neighbor. Faithfulness is awakened when we are forgiven by the only one who has the power to condemn us. The only one in the room that day who had no sin. And he chooses to say, neither do I. Neither do I condemn you. 
Go, sin no more. Take up a life that fits the kind of love with which you have been loved by God. Go into that world. Go and sin no more. That's a weird thing to think about. And many of us, and I know for the probably the bulk of my Christian life, I would read something like that. And I'm like, Jesus, you're like, what does that even mean? And I think it simply means that we go and we be, just become more honest about all the ways in which we're broken with God. We bring those broken bits into our life, our dialogue with God, and we understand that He doesn't run from us. And we do that in the context of Christian community because we're never meant to sort of bear up and attempt holiness by ourselves. We're meant to walk alongside of each other so that in those moments when I'm despairing of my own story, some brother, some sister is drawing near me and they say, he loves you. Yeah, sin's a real thing. He loves you. How can we be with you in your life, in your situation? How can we help you? How can we be a part of your life with God? And how can you be a part of my life with God? So just to close, as I think about this particular story, it does seem that it really offers each of us an opportunity to just get a little bit quiet. Maybe you're the one stooping and doodling in the dirt in utter silence before the Lord. And the invitation is just, Holy Spirit, what, what would you say to me this morning? I think on the macro level, he's urging the church to sort of recognize that it's polarized and we either go in the right side direction of doubling down and we need desperately to hear Jesus's, neither do I. Or on the other side, we go in the direction and we forget that sin is a real thing but how do we actually begin to reform and change the church itself? And the answer is that you, Christians, you, followers of Jesus, humble yourself before him and invite him to speak his words into your story so that you remember that you are indeed the sinner that is caught in a sense. And he looks on you and says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. May God give us the grace to live in this context of his mercy and his deep, deep abiding love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.